This has nothing to do with our sermon today. I just thought it was funny this week when I saw it. The Kansas City Taylor Swifts are going to play this afternoon. <clears throat> I don't know who Taylor Swift is, but he sounds fast. That's wonderful. All right, so that had nothing to do with where we're going, but it got your attention, so we're good. All right, well, if you're new with us, my name's Travis. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, every once in a while, I lead worship and teach on the same Sunday because I like to double up, um, kind of keeps my head in the space. And we're in Galatians chapter 3 today. And uh, there's a little bit of feedback going on in my voice, so hopefully that's not too distracting for you guys, um, and that will get taken care of here. So we've been in the book of Galatians. We're on Galatians chapter 3. Remember, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. There's false teachers that have infiltrated. False teachers, they're called the Judaizers. They're Jews. Um, and they're claiming, okay, well, you can believe in Christ. He's the Messiah. His sacrifice on the cross, yes, it covered your sins. But now you actually need to follow the law. And especially in this church that's split about 50-50, Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, people who are non-Jews, they're saying, hey, you non-Jews need to follow all of the rules and all of the laws and become like a Jew in order to truly follow God. You have to be circumcised. They were adding requirements to salvation, rules, laws. And so uh, go back to last week and listen to the end of Galatians 2. It really builds to that point. Paul is not just like this week bringing a bunch of new material. He's just kind of intensifying. <laughs> he's getting a little bit more forceful. So up till now, he's introduced the reality that you can't add anything to the gospel he has a violent reaction to anyone who does. He says, that's not even a gospel if you add anything to it. It's a false gospel. It's an abomination. And he called out even the apostle Peter for having added to the gospel in his life. And so what he introduced at the end of chapter 2 was the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. And now for the next two chapters, he's going to defend that. And so we're going to start that today. It's really, this, this whole chapter is incredibly rich. It's deeply theological. I really, really struggled with condensing it. So hopefully you'll get to see the Taylor Swift's play today, but maybe not. <laughs> just kidding. We'll let you go at some point. But it's also not just like in the theoretical realm. Some people hear theological and they go, oh, great. It's going to be another one of those. I think it's intensely practical at the same time. So before we dive in, I think define a couple of spiritual words. This first one is justification. You've been made righteous. This is what happens when you trust in the gospel. It's not a way of life. It's not a whole bunch of rules. It's you've been declared not guilty solely because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross where he took your sin and you got his righteousness, that happened and it's finished. You've been made holy. Your status of sinner, unclean, rebellious, disgusting, you can add a bunch of adjectives to that, it's changed entirely. It's flipped on its head. You're holy. You're set apart. You're new. You are righteous and that means you now are justified before God himself, meaning you can stand in his presence, the judge of the universe, and he judges you perfect. And then there's this word, sanctification, and this is basically just growing in righteousness. So you've been made righteous, and now you're growing in righteousness. This is the continual process of the believer after they've been declared righteous and justified to continue growing in that righteousness, being made more holy. It's progressive. It con you conform slowly into something that looks similar to the image of God. You've been justified, and you're going to be slowly resembling that as your life goes on through the work of the Holy Spirit, and both of these are a work of grace through faith. And that's what Paul's going to point out in this passage. He's going to say this is made possible only by the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so I think the big question we have to ask here, modern day America, 2,000 years after all this was written, 
How do you move from this, the place of justification, you've been accepted by Christ, and you've been given his righteousness, to actually living out a righteous life? Or maybe we could just put it in plain terms. When you become a Christian, you realize you've been pardoned, you've been forgiven, God loves you, but you look at yourself and you're like, I still lust. I still get angry. I still have fear and trouble with self-control. How do I get more humble because I'm incredibly prideful? How do I be more loving, especially when, you know, that person doesn't deserve it? How do I get joy and peace in my life because I'm not seeing it? Now that I'm in, how do I move ahead? Now that I've been made righteous, how do I actually start acting that way? And I, I'm convinced at this point, based just on my own history, most Christians, in America at least, I don't know about the rest of the world, but most Christians, even if they get the justification part of it, they then absorb this idea, and it's the same one the Judaizers are bringing into the church in Galatia, you're saved by the gospel, but now you grow by working hard, by gritting your teeth and grinding it out every day. That's my pattern. Is it yours? You know, it's the idea that apparently, according to a poll I found, that 81% of Americans think is in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves. And where that actually came from was about 400 years before Christ, <laughs> the Greeks, multiple guys in the, in the Greek world, Sophocles was one who said that. Um, hundreds of years after Christ, the Quran actually says it. Indeed, Allah will not change the conditions of a population until they change what is in themselves. Quran 13, 11. Unless they change what is in themselves, Paul is going to tell us today, in today's scripture, we can't change what's in ourselves, meaning we can't help ourselves on our own effort. God has to take that initiative for us, and all we have to do is have faith. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. God, like I said earlier, I'm grateful that you're here with us. We, together as a church, confess that we don't often live as if that's true. And we think you're looking the other way or you're displeased with us, so you've distanced yourself. And if we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, make ourselves better, you'll then come and transform us and transform our church and transform our city. I pray today that your word would be like cool water in a dry desert to our souls. That it would fill us up and that your Holy Spirit would ignite it. I guess we're water and fire. I don't know how those analogies work together, but we'd love to be full of the Holy Spirit's fire at the same time. Help us be more aware of your presence in our lives, Spirit and to understand what it is that we have access to in this person, this helper, this force that's in us that Jesus promised in John 14 would come. Because God, I think that we're spiritually stagnant and missing it and we're weak trying to do this on our own. Help us instead of us helping us today. I pray that this word would come alive to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. If you're in your house Bible, that's page 973. So Paul is shifting here to rebuke. Now he's been rebuking. He rebuked Peter pretty harshly. But now he's just going to full on those who, those who he called brothers, the Galatians, um, they're kind of baby Christians still at this point. They haven't been believers for that long. The churches there haven't existed for all that long. But he's shifting to rebuke, and it's a really harsh one, one of the harsher ones in the Bible. And I think that's because the gospel is being distorted. It's being threatened, and he sees that. 
He says in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Bewitched, meaning you're under a spell. You listened to something. You looked at something. Something captivated your attention to the point where you now can't see anything else. You're missing it. You're lost. You're fools. What in the world are you doing? It's kind of similar to like, you know, when your kid is really little and they run out in the street, but there's a semi-truck coming and you assume the Superman pose, you know, and you drag him back. (laughs) It's like that, hey, buddy, I'm not going to say to my kid, it's so cool that you're so fast that you could run. Like, I'm not going to be positive in that moment. I'm going to be like, dude, stop it. That's foolish. And then I might go find like a dead toad on the side of the road. What is that? Sorry, there's a nursery rhyme song. Dead squirrel. Buddy, look at this. This is gross, isn't it? That's you if you had stepped out in front of that truck. I want you to be full of fear and not foolish. So early in the chapter, he's calling them brothers, and he gets kind of intimate, and you know, now he's saying, you're a fool. Why? Because you're missing this core doctrine that is everything. It's Everything He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I dove into the Greek on this one because it's a little bit of a confusing moment. Because the Galatians hadn't actually seen Jesus crucified. They just heard the word from Paul and believed it. And it's, the Greek is interesting because that word publicly, the NIV translates that as clearly, Jesus was clearly portrayed. The Greek, like the literal Greek, says graphically. Like it's been drawn out for you, graphically made obvious. Jesus Christ was graphically portrayed as crucified. I liked the New Living Translation. It said, um, it says, the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. It reminded me of when Paul writes in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. So when he came to the Galatian church, he didn't give them a set of rules, a set of regulations, ways to live righteously, ways to get their act together to help themselves so God would finally be able to step in and help them. No, he came and he gave them a story about a real event that really happened and he preached it and they believed it so deeply that something deep down inside of them, the eyes of their hearts were enlightened. It's metaphorical. It's vividly seeing the story of the gospel, the moment of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel in your mind's eye when they heard his preaching. So they heard his teaching, like as 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, the gospel came to them not simply with words, but with the Spirit's power and with deep conviction. They saw in their hearts that not just that Christ had died, that he'd been crucified, but that he had died for them. It was personal. It was a powerful vision deep in their souls that lit up all the shadows and ignited their imagination, and they saw it graphically. It changed them. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit (laughs) by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith, are you so foolish? Again, he's being really harsh. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? (laughs) His question is rhetorical. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? They know they didn't. In faith, they had believed they had received the Spirit. And maybe you're like them and you've believed. But now you're running around trying to make yourself be Good And Paul's saying that is not how it's supposed to go. You need to look back at that initial vision that lit up your mind and your heart and your soul of Jesus crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and alive today and what that did for your status. You need to see the beauty of Jesus' righteousness, how he died personally for you. That's what he's saying. So look at your life now where you're trying to perfect yourself by works. Now go all the way back to where you were saved and received the Holy Spirit. How were you saved? By faith in what Christ did on the cross, not by being good. If you're looking at your shortcomings today and thinking somehow God is less delighted in you now because of them than you were when when he was when you first got saved, you're greatly mistaken. 
He's saying the way now for sanctification is the same way you got in. Belief. Faith. Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? I think they probably did undergo a lot of suffering. When Paul came to Galatia, that is just a brutal section of the book of Acts. He suffered so much. He got stoned. That's stones pelting you. And they they thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. And then he got back up and went back in to go preach the gospel again. I'm assuming this this suffering could be a lot of different things. But I'm, I'm assuming he knows of suffering that the Galatian church is experiencing that was similar to what he was experiencing. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing is present tense. This is not past tense. You heard with faith back then to get saved. Now you're hearing with faith currently. You don't move on now and make process by doing some make progress by doing something different. You do it the same way you believed in the first place, by hearing with faith. Hearing what? The story of Jesus on the cross. And so now we move on. Verse 6. We're going to go to Abraham. And I think he's, he's contending with these Judaizers, and he's hearing their arguments, and he knows these are Jews. They're all about their heritage, because they're in the biological line of their father Abraham, who's way back in Genesis, They think that in of itself is enough to make me part of God's family as long as I work really, really hard. And so he's saying, okay, you guys, you Judaizers, you talk about needing to be circumcised in order to be right with God. Well, let's go back to where that concept started with Father Abraham and let's see how he was justified. And so he gives a case study. Just as Abraham believed God, so by hearing with faith, that's the context, hearing with faith, Just as Abraham did, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then, verse 7, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So it's a case study. It's the perfect example for these Judaizers to see in how to become a Christian. He quotes their scripture. He quotes the foundation of their existence, which is their father, Abraham. And he quotes first, Abraham believed God who has counted him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. And then he quotes, the, uh, he quotes another one later. Um, <clears throat> let's see, where is that? He says, and, those, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And this is in Genesis 12. In you shall all the nations be Blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so Paul is showing here the necessity of faith, not of work or abiding by the law. And so what he's doing is he's taking them back to this picture of Abraham, and he's building this picture, and it's the same one we see built throughout the New Testament, that anyone who is part of the people of God is in the line of Abraham. God's people began with Abraham. He's the father of Israel. That plays out into the new covenant that's going to save the whole world and bless the whole world with Jesus. And it also plays out in us becoming sons of Abraham grafted in by faith. And that's why when I was a little kid in church, we sang, Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them and so are you. And then it's like right arm and you shake your arm around. And I don't know what that has to do with the song, but... It's stuck in my head. So going back to Abraham, I'm going to go back all the way to Genesis 12. You can follow along if you want. It's on page 8. <laughs> I keep my thumb in Galatians because I've got a piece of paper that I tore off of my notes. We want to see how he received this promise from the Lord. What is this faith? What did he believe? Genesis 12.1, now the Lord said to Abram, remember this is even before his name was changed to Abraham, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is an awesome promise. And Abraham is just a random pagan guy in the Middle East somewhere, that God picked. (laughs) Abraham hadn't done anything to deserve this. He's a guy that God initiated with. 
And God gave him this. And I think that that's maybe one of our main emphasis is here. God initiated, just like he initiated with you. You heard the gospel message, and that's God initiating with you, and the Holy Spirit enlightens your heart to understand it and helps you. And it's through nothing you're doing. He blesses, and this is by grace. So it's interesting that Abraham didn't initiate it. I think that's maybe one of our big clues on what all this is about. He didn't make a deal with God. God, I'm so good, and so come and make a covenant with me. And <laughs> but the problem here is that Abraham just said, all the nations will be blessed through Abraham, and he didn't even have a son. So moving on a couple of pages to Genesis 15, some stuff happens in Abraham's life, and God kind of gets a little bit more a hold of him. And, and then here's, here's the other quote where Paul quotes him. Um, I'll get to that. 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So you see his faith kind of wavering, like he received this promise. I'm going to make your descendants numerous, like as numerous as the stars. That's what he's about to tell him. But he's wavering. And he has the audacity to ask for a sign. <laughs> What are you going to give me? What are you, how are you going to show me? I don't have any offspring. My servant is going to be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your own very son will be your heir. And he brought him outside. He said, look toward heaven the number of, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's where Paul quoted from, 15.6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then he goes on to make him more promises, and he's still got the audacity to say, how am I going to know this? How do I know this for sure? What? It's like this little, tiny grain of faith, like the mustard seed that Jesus talked about. Just sort of started igniting in him. So what's going on with Abram now is he's 99 years old, and he doesn't have a son. His wife is 90. She's well past menopause. There's no way he's going to have a line that comes from him that's going to bless all the nations of the world when he can't even have a son. His, he's too old. His wife is too old. And she's so old, when she hears this promise, she just laughs in disbelief. <laughs> and that's the picture that Paul is communicating to the Galatians and to us, that God's grace is radical. With his, his initiative, he brings everything to the table for us, and it's not what Abraham or Sarah brought or what we brought. He has this audacity to ask. Verse 8 there, he says, But, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And that, that's, that's kind of weird and gross, Back then, when you were making a business deal, you would enter into what's called a covenant. It's a contract. Contracts spell out the terms, right? So you're bringing your part, I'm bringing my part, and we're both signing on this, and we have penalties included. So if I renege on my part, I go back on it, I fail, this is what I'm liable for. And so the way that this would work is you get an animal and you do the act of sawing it in half, which is really gross, and it's, it's a brutal reminder for Abraham. And you spread those pieces apart, and then both parties who are making this contract would walk between those. And it's sim symbolic. It, it's saying, if I break the terms of this contract that we've agreed to, may it be done to me as it was done to these animals. It's, it's brutal. If I break my end of the deal, may it be done to me as it was done to these animals. So the sun is going down. Uh, verse 12, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then God speaks. He gives him the promise of the blessing. Then down in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And notice that Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces, only God does. So this is a unilateral contract. One way, God is saying, based on my grace, I'm initiating a covenant with you, and though you bring nothing to the table at all, you will receive my blessing. All you have to do is believe. Believe it's true. 
even though your wife is laughing at you, because there's no way she can have a baby, there's no way your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. Believe it's true. It's radical. And this is the passage Paul goes back to to try to explain what it means to become a Christian. And notice Paul didn't say, and Genesis doesn't say, Abraham believed in God. He said Abraham believed God. I was writing this out in my little manuscript here, and my spell check kept trying to insert an in there. Abraham believed God. It's like, don't you want to say in? (laughs) Meaning you can believe in God, but not have the faith and not be saved. Believing God is what makes you a Christian. He believed God's promise even though it seemed impossible. And that's what faith is. Faith. Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old, that's Abram and many others, received their commendation. So maybe he's arguing with the Judaizers and they concede on the faith point. Okay, sure, we see the faith, but you know, later God gives us a covenant with Moses and there's law and there's rules. You know, Abraham's not circumcised then when he believes, but later on, it's like 14 years after this whole covenant is made that God makes him be circumcised. So maybe still it's applicable. And so back to Galatians, Paul answers that point. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. I don't have time today to go fully into all the implications of the law, but fortunately, the rest of the passage is about that, and Perry's going to talk about that next week, and it's going to be rich and awesome, and don't miss it, but I do want to dive into it just a little bit, probably up till verse 14. Um, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And that's the third Old Testament quote that Paul goes back to to convince these people who really value the Old Testament scriptures. This is in Deuteronomy 27. The the law demands perfect obedience. If you've just broken one rule, like do not lie, you're under a curse. And so the law confronts us because the reality is none of us abide by all the things written. And so then therefore we're cursed. It exposes our sin I'd love to sit deeply in this theology, but you'd never get to the Super Bowl today. But there's a long set of curses in Deuteronomy 27. He has the people split in two, and they go up on this mountain, and they go up on this mountain, and the Levites, the priests, stand in the middle, and they pronounce the curses. If you do this, you'll be cursed. If you neglect to care for the foreigner in your midst, may you be cursed. And all the people said, amen. And do that over and over and over and over again. And it's not random rules, it's covenant. It's the stipulation of what it means to be in a relationship with God. And so, in some ways, the Judaizers really do have a point. God came and he delivered this and he gave it. But they're thinking of it in terms of this legal contract. Um, but it's really what it is, it's It's relational. Because those rules aren't just simply rules. They're not just things that God made up arbitrarily. They're things about God. And I think a lot of us, we approach God, and we think, you know, I really like God, but I'm going to do this on my terms. You know, God couldn't possibly have meant this in the Scripture because culture says this, so obviously it's that. So that's what I'm going to do. And so you go to God, and you're like, man, God, I love you. I worship you. And you sit in church, and you're like, yeah, let my heart burn for you. But then you read the verses about what thriving should look like in your sexual ethics. And you dismiss it because that seems old-fashioned. Well, then your worship of God was not authentic because you're not actually connecting with him. You're connecting with your idea of who he is. It's like, so next week, my wife and I will have our 20th wedding anniversary. And I know her pretty well at this point. And so if I were to, for some reason, even after all these years of knowing better, take her out for a wonderful dinner of corned beef, because I love it, it's my thing, I would be under a curse. (laughs) In a relationship, you have to know what makes the other person tick. 
That's not going to bless our marriage. That's not going to bless our relationship. I need to know what she cares about, what she loves, what her passions are, what her desires are. It's the same with God. He doesn't say don't lie because it's just a random thing. It's because he's the truth. There is no deceit in him, but a lie to God is worse than me serving corned beef to my wife because when the relationship with God is violated, we're cut off from it. And when you're cut off from a relationship with God, you are going to die. And that's what Paul is getting into. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hanged on a tree. It's another Old Testament quote. This is Deuteronomy 21. We're under a curse because we violated the terms of the covenant. We violated the relationship with God and we're cursed. We need the cross. This verse is actually super strong. It says Jesus was cursed Not just that he was cursed, but that he became a curse. In this Old Testament quote, Deuteronomy 21, that Paul's referring to, it's when someone is put to death, and it's a covenant breaker. You know, when someone is stoned, they would actually take the body and they'd hang it up on a tree in public to deter further crime. See this, but it says in that passage that a man hung that way is cursed by God. If you leave it up overnight, it's going to curse the land. And so take that body down so as not to defile the land. And so we remember the covenant God made with Abram. Abram didn't walk through the animals, only God did. So when Abram and his descendants then violate the terms of the law that's been given through Moses, God took the penalty and died and was hung on the tree. It says that in Acts 5, Acts 10 actually uses the word tree, the cross. Jesus was executed on a cross. As I was thinking about this and reading about Abraham and his little bit of faith, you know, he's saying, Father Abraham and many sons and many sons had father. Really, it's Father Abraham whored out his wife to the Pharaoh of Egypt. (laughs) That's true, right? You guys are cringing. Sunday school teachers, take note. (laughs) God's view of Abraham's faith versus the actual history of Abraham's track record and his work are very different looking things. Abraham, on two separate occasions was so afraid of the ruler that he was around because his wife was so pretty. Instead of going, you know what? I'm going to fight for you, wife. He went, you know what? I don't want to die, so why don't you go sleep with him? God magically, graciously, not magically, it's graciously. He intervened and protected her despite, I'm sure Abraham heard about that for the rest of their marriage. (laughs) It's just... And then later on, he takes matters into his own hands, and Sarah doesn't believe, and she's past menopause, and they're both going, okay, God promised a kid, but she's like, Abraham, you better sleep with my servants so this can be fulfilled. Take matters into your own hands and do it yourself. Work, work, work. Make it happen. And so he sleeps with Hagar, and Ishmael is the result, and God says, no, that's not my promise. But we have this vision of what faith is in Hebrews chapter 11. It's the assurance of things hoped for, and yet Abraham's faith is so tiny and so small, and that's actually really, really encouraging for me. Paul expands on this whole thing with Abraham in Romans chapter 4. He says, this is talking about Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. 
a little bit of a different picture than what we see. And you know, the Jews, they had kind of gotten confused about this, and their priests, a couple thousand years later after Abraham's life, wrote some fiction into his life, saying he had seen the sun, he had seen the moon, and he realized those weren't God, so he went looking for God, and then God honored that initiative that Abraham took. By the way, that's also in the Quran. Muhammad wrote that later. That Abraham somehow had figured out through his own work that he needed to enter into a covenant with God rather than God just simply showing up and taking the initiative with him. Because somehow for us, we can't fathom the idea that I could somehow just rest in the finished work of God and just believe and have it counted to me as righteousness. I am so wired for production and performance and work and meritocracy, but what does that do for me and for everyone else? It leaves us wasted, exhausted, and we fail to look back to that moment and have our mind's eye resonate on the gospel. Jesus was executed on a cross. Jesus took the curse that resulted from our law breaking. He took it on himself to redeem us from sin, his abandonment on the cross. He said, Father, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned. The relationship, perfect relationship with his father was severed when he became a curse. He was abandoned so you could be adopted into the family. His curse, becoming the curse, means your blessing. He took your place on the cross so you can take his place in the kingdom of God because he was forsaken by his father. You could become a, ch- a child of that father in the household of God because he became a curse and was broken. We became whole. And now he says to us, I will never leave you. I will live in you. I will dwell in you. I will be with you forever. I will not forsake you. It is finished. Our salvation is done. It is completed. And the last verse here, so that In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We don't just get the blessing of Abraham. That's the salvation. That's what he's promised. This thing is going to come from you. This person is going to come from you. We'll get into next week. It's the seed, the seed of you, your offspring is going to come into this this one person. And that's what Abraham had faith in. This one person that would be coming to save the world, but we don't just have that blessing, meaning salvation. We get the promised spirit through faith. So we tend to think of the end result of the gospel as justification. I said this last week. We stop. We get stuck at this wall. I've been forgiven. And as if that's the end. Through Jesus Christ becoming the curse on the cross for me, I received the person of the Spirit of God. And so now God says, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm in you. He's opening a door to freedom and power in the presence of his Holy Spirit. And if you walk through that door past just being forgiven into that freedom, it's going to blow your mind. Justification is the doorway. Don't stay in the doorway trying to be good on your own as if somehow that could make you free. It's not going to work. Go out into the amazing world of freedom being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I was reading this week, just I love to read about church history. There was analysis about the 1980s and the 1990s and how American Christians really did turn to Christianity at that point for moral direction. The apologetics, the gospel messages that were help, like helpers for us as we went out to share the gospel really revolved around that. The Ten Commandments, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. You know, you could walk up to someone on the street and say, hey, have you ever lied? Well, you're in violation of what God says. And they'd be like, oh man, you're right. How am I going to get to heaven? And so people would flock to churches in those, those seasons looking for moral direction. 
And that's just kind of phased out in today's world. People really aren't turning to Christianity for that. And I think partially it's because we're still mostly as a church handing them moral direction as if somehow they in their pagan state could perform under the curse of the law. Like we don't even comprehend this in our messaging to them. And that's what they think. Oh, do this, don't do that. I talked about that last week. Go listen to that for more fullness on that. But I saw an ad yesterday for a local psychic here in Fort Collins promoting his services. And it's just fascinating to me to even watch like the interaction with that ad that people are having. And, and he promises to get you in touch with the mystical spiritual power that exists in the universe. And you can actually feel it. And it's actually going to do something and make a difference in your life. It's going to clean out your bad energy and purify you and help you accomplish things and really, truly help you become the person that you've always wanted to be. And I think that that actually captures a little bit about what our current world is looking for. They're looking for something real. They're not just looking for a method. Actions work. They're looking for something real, a power that they can actually experience and sense and know. And I think that's what Paul is referring to here when he says we're not just getting the blessing. We're getting the spirit. Are you being perfected by the spirit or by the law? The spirit. If you want to have a spiritually powerful life, here it is. The Spirit is capitalized. It's a personal pronoun throughout this passage. Our world is looking for like this pulse of divine energy. But we get divine power living in us that's personal. It's God. We have access to this power. It's far superior than anything this world has to offer us. It's way beyond anything anyone else can claim to have. And so when we talk about sanctification, becoming more righteous, what we're talking about is the spiritual power at work in our lives. And it's simply coming to grips with the knowledge of what, actually who, you have in you. The glory and power that's there in the Spirit of God, it's the helper that was promised by Jesus in John 14 that was going to come. And I think when you see that, you walk through that doorway past just, I'm been forgiven, and you actually start interacting with God. You, know, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1, 8. If you want to follow God, you're trying to figure out how the answer is always the power of the Holy Spirit. How does that work practically? You have to make space for it. Our word last year was abide. It's all over the word. It's the, it's, it's, it's the tree in the Psalms planted by the stream. The, it could be a desert. It could have wind and drought. But the roots are in the stream and it's alive. The spirit is in us and he's alive. And most Christians think they change by trying and they say pithy things even like let go and let God. But the reality is they're just gritting their teeth and trying harder to stop sinning. So let's just say practically you have a lust problem. You can't just willpower your way out of that and fix yourself. It's, that's a losing strategy. And I don't know if you should just, you could just say, God, please take this away from you or away from me. I have heard people say, you know, they've had this miraculous release I think for most of us, that's not necessarily going to be how it works out. You have to take the time to abide and connect to the vine, connect to the living water, connect to the Holy Spirit. And you see in your mind's eye, just like Paul is saying afresh, how Christ saved you, how he became a curse for you on the cross. You dwell on that. You see his delight in you that is as strong right now in the midst of your sin as it was the day you first got saved and you just sit there and you let him open you up to deeper levels of experiencing his grace and his power and his presence and you ask the Holy Spirit since he's in you he's with you he fully accepts you right now as you are through the finished work of Jesus on the cross just ask him what is it that I'm not seeing in the fullness of the beauty of what Christ has done for me if I'm lusting what is it that I think I'm missing out on over here. Spirit, what is it that I think I need so much of? If I don't, if I don't have it, why, why am I wrestling? Why am I not satisfied? And you have to set aside time to do this and do the hard work of sitting with God in the midst of it and listening and engaging in faith. 
in the morning, in the evening, sometimes in the middle of the day. You have to sit in the truth of the Bible. You have to read it. You have to meditate on it. Ask the Spirit to ignite it within you. That's, he's just dying to do that. You can't do it halfway. You can't engage with God like the story, you know, if I engage with my wife with corned beef on our anniversary. You don't do it that way. You have, can't just go to church once or twice a month and think that this is going to have power and expect the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit in you. It's an all-in thing. Let the Holy Spirit take the truth of this and set it on fire in your life, and he'll overwhelm you with that truth. The comfort that you're looking for as you lust, the desire to feel good, the desire to feel accepted and known and wanted, the Holy Spirit will reaffirm deep in you that God accepts you right now despite knowing you fully in those deepest, darkest shadows of your life. And you have full access to him right now. He wants you. He likes you. I know God loves me, but does he like me? He does. He likes you. He desires you. His pleasure is forevermore for you at his right hand, and he's holding your right hand. <laughs> just sit in that until you just have an explosion of joy in your heart. And that affection that rises as your mind's eye sees the beauty of the gospel will just drive out that affection that you're having for something less. And you'll see it for what it is, a sewer pipe in the desert that will give you no refreshment. And you'll be living by faith. And like Abraham, this promise, trust that it's true. Don't let any unbelief make you waver. Even though maybe your life looks a little bit like Abraham's life, God's view of you is just wonderful. Believe in God. Band, you guys come, come back up here. We're going to sing a song at the end. But we want to do communion first. So if you guys want to grab, I think there's some over there on the, the little table over there. Do you want to be like those people in the hall of faith? That's Hebrews chapter 11. It starts off talking about what faith is, but verse 33, through faith, men and women conquered kingdoms. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. They became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of the them. Those are people of faith, and you have everything they had and more in the Holy Spirit living in you. Stop living by the law and start experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power. The reason we don't live radical lives like that is because we lack the faith to see that we already have that in us. And it's not through anything we're doing. It's God's Initiative. We can walk through the doorway of forgiveness into a radically different life, one that's worth risking everything for, even our lives. And being in God's presence is that good. Everything else pales in comparison. And so what we're going to do right now is what Jesus told us to do because we're forgetful. We tend to forget. We're prone to forget. We turn back to our own selves and our own work. And he set up this thing we call communion. And when he was with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. He gave it to them and he said, take this and eat. Eat it in remembrance of me. He took the cup. He said, drink this. When you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. My blood poured out for you. My body crushed, bruised, broken, sacrificed for you. That's, this is significant. It helps us remember. I was just... Um, even thinking about the wafer that we have, the bread, and how our teeth crush it, I think it's powerful. Just to comprehend and think about the body, it's not the actual body of Christ. We don't believe that. It's symbolic. 
you crush it. Just think of his body being crushed and the father being pleased to crush his son because he had become a curse. And remember, remember, remember what he has done for you. So you can find the cup in your pew if you haven't found it already. Raise your hand if you need a gluten-free option. If you have not yet believed, if you have not yet turned in faith to this finished work on the cross, you can do that right now, just even in your own heart right now. You can just say, Jesus, I believe. I see that you have paid the price for my sin, and I'm going to rest in that right now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And then you can take this with us. But if you haven't believed that, if you haven't come to that yet, we just appreciate it if you abstain from that right now. Parents, um, if your kids are in here, just go ahead and you can guide them if you need to, if they're really young. Um, but let's do this together. And I'd just love for us to all, no music, just here together as the body of Christ, reflecting on this. Take that wafer out. Think about Jesus hanging on the tree and becoming a curse for us. And think about how the Father was pleased to crush him because our sin was on him. And as your teeth crush it, just picture that and sit in that and let your mind's eye dwell on it. Take me. And then take the cup. His blood poured out in the forgiveness for your sins. The forgiveness, the doorway, justification, access to God. This gives that to you. Remember what he has done. Remember what he has done and drink. And now let's sing one last song and rest. We're going to sing Embraced in the Promise of You. Remember, Abraham received a promise, and the promise of God and the promise of the Holy Spirit is rest for the weary soul. Releasing all that is mine, I reach for you.